From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me today are Alicia Eastman, President of Intercontinental Energy, Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, and Patrick Malloy, Manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI. On this episode of Everything About Hydrogen, we are speaking with Nashwa Al-Rawahi, Director of HMR Environmental Consultants based in Muscat, Oman. For over 30 years, HMR has been a leading provider of environmental, engineering, and technology consulting services across diverse industries to help their clients identify and analyze environmental and social impacts. Nashua worked on the first environmental and social impact assessment for hydrogen in Oman and explains the government strategy for hydrogen projects. But before we get into it, we'd just like to ask that if you enjoy the show and follow us here at EAH, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Plus, we love hearing from our listeners. All right, let's get this episode started. Well, Alicia, it looks like it's just you and me uh, for this particular episode this week. According to my sources, both Patrick and Andrew have not had a great IT week. So um, I was spoiled for your company, I should say. Yours and Nashwood's company, actually, um, <laughs> who's uh, joining us later on the show. It feels like it's been a quiet journey for me, but maybe not for you. So what's going on your end? It was a busy one, definitely. Well, we had Davos. Uh, we had the um, Mining and Minerals Conference in Saudi. And that was really interesting because it was basically focused on ESG and mining and then also the supply chain for uh, metals and minerals and basically the supply chain for renewables. So really tying into um, electrolyzers for renewables and everything that will be feeding into our supply chain. So that was really interesting. It's great that they're jumping on that right away so that we can have some diversity there and not run out of things. Busy month. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, maybe talk a bit about Davos, actually, I mean, while we're here, because Davos is a weird one. It, sort of, it seemed to lose quite a lot of its clout during kind of the COVID years. I guess not people not meeting in person made quite a bit of a difference. And there was quite a bit of commentary around Davos in the press this year and people saying, is it still relevant? How do the topics kind of come together? And obviously, this is a big, uh, this is another big cop year coming up. So, you know, what was your takeaway from Davos? Do you still think it's a convening body that has the power to make a difference? Or do you think it's almost being superseded by these other types of forums, certainly on the climate issue anyway? This year was very interesting. It, it seemed like the GCC was competing with Davos because every single day of Davos, there was another event that was in Abu Dhabi or was in Saudi or was in some part of the GCC. And all of that is a buildup to COP that's going to be in the UAE in the fall. Definitely, I think there was a strong attempt to basically take the climate agenda away from Davos and, and give it more to COP and to all the in-between planning for COP, the, the run-ups to COP and all the different champions, which I will never understand <laughs> how it's structured or how it works. You know, I mean, the names for things are just so bizarre. But um, but yeah, so I, I do think that. And, and obviously, the that everybody flying on their private jets and taking their yachts to Davos and, and whatnot is just it, it's off-putting. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't really drive the message home, and it doesn't really feel like problems are being solved. But having said that, I still think that there's a space and a desire for private solutions and and private support for things that matter to the world. And I'm glad that there are people out there willing to do philanthropic. Um, 
activities and and are focused on real world problems as opposed to uh, just mean another banking conference or a, a conference related to investment. So I think, yes, it is losing a little bit of its shine because it seems that there's a lot of hypocrisy, or at least that's what people are poking at. But it's still a lot of people get together at once. And um, it's a good place to run into a lot of people. And I think that's what makes it attractive. Yeah, I mean, I think we've suddenly realized uh, post-pandemic, I think the importance of people being together, right? And, and actually, I wonder whether that's kind of why um, it does feel like this year, at least is the year kind of of action a little bit more on the hydrogen side, certainly. I mean, you know, thinking about some stories that came out. So you had a number of large orders for Nikola fuel cell trucks in Europe, which is really exciting. There was a deal with Eon that was announced, but there was also another deal in northern Germany that was announced. There was some additional um, large-scale green hydrogen projects with HH2E announced in Germany that was interesting. A number of projects in the Middle East, of which we'll get into at least some of the talking about that a little bit later on the episode. And uh, But, you know, it, it feels like that sort of moved. And, you know, uh, even just trials of hydrogen assets. I mean, you know, we keep seeing stories. There was a great um, Netflix reel around fuel cells being used for backup, people like GeoPure and others. People like Hydrologique starting to appear, doing it for like events and festivals. High Evolution this year should be really well attended, I suspect. Quite a few hydrogen conferences are all selling out, which is really exciting. Uh, it, it feels like this should be a good year for hydrogen and even the investment side. Yeah, well, I don't know. Has hydrogen really ever, like, <laughs> have, has, it, has it slowed down or is it just like, uh, you know, well, at the end of last year. growing faster, <laughs> but maybe at, at slower rates yeah. every now and then? Well, I think I think the pace of growth is probably uh, not. You're, you're right. I think the pace has stayed intense, but I think I think definitely the the broader um, nervousness around growth stocks and the impact that had on valuations and funding rounds, structures, and timelines to close that definitely seemed to be impacting the market back end of Q3, Q4 last year. But it does feel, to my mind, that actually Q1 this year is starting quite well, and I, I wonder whether that's the same sentiment you're getting. I think so. And and I think that there's still a lot of capital that needs to move into these green spaces and they're going to try to move in earlier than usual. So they'll be in the development rounds and, and, and I don't think that's going to change. I mean, there's still just a number of players that, that really want uh, decarbonization and they want to move from fossil fuels. Um, and they've got a lot of capital that wants to move as well. So I think that's that's going to remain the same. And the closer we get to these big FIDs, the easier it is for them to, to do that. Um, and that really will just, I think, begin to really grow the market. And all of the other reasons that we, we decided ourselves to do large projects, um, is it's all about, you know, scaling. So as these projects get off the ground and we start to scale different components in the supply chain, that's just going to snowball because it's going to help all of the smaller projects as well. And I, so I think, um, I, yeah, we're right at the beginning of some actual implementation and, and you know, getting into um, final studies and, and papering and, you know, hopefully hit some FIDs. One market that certainly doesn't need any money is the Middle East. And uh, this week's guest is, uh, you know, someone who you recommended to us. Um, so do you want to introduce this week's guest and tell us a little bit about her and uh, a little bit about the background? Sure. So we have Nashwa Al-Rawahi. She is a director at HMR Environmental Consultants, which is based in Muscat, Oman, with regional offices in the United Arab Emirates. Before joining the firm, Nashwa earned multiple degrees and worked for a number of blue chip names, which she will hopefully tell us a bit more about in the interview. But uh, I knew her because her firm has uh, done the environmental analysis for our project in Oman, and we 
tend to select a local group if we can, not just for ICB reasons, but usually they understand what could potentially be problems because the way that we look at our selection of sites is, you know, do no harm. We don't want to have to cut anything down. We don't want to have to hurt anything. So ideally you have the dullest, most in uninteresting piece of land possible to put your turbines on. You know, all we can do is is make things actually better. That That, that is our ideal. Um, and so she worked with us to, to try to do that very thing. And I think she'll talk a little bit about that and maybe we can go right into it. So Nashua, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself and your work at the moment. Okay, sure. First of all, thank you for having me on here. Um, so just a bit about my background. So I was actually uh, born and raised in the U.S. Uh, for my formative, or most of my formative years uh, at least. Um, so I actually lived in Gainesville, uh, Florida. I moved to Oman, which is my home country. I'm from Masqat, uh, Oman. Uh, continued my private schooling and then moved back to the U.S. in 2004 to pursue my higher education in environmental and civil engineering. So I went to the George Washington University um, and lived in D.C. for almost 10 years. Um, so after I graduated, I worked at the EPA, actually during my master's program. I was at the U.S. EPA at their site, the Superfund uh, Site Remediation Office, looking at cleanup recommendations and technology innovations in that space. And then after I finished my graduate work, uh, so my master's in environmental and civil engineering with a focus in environmental management, I joined uh, Booz Allen Hamilton. So I was in their center of excellence uh, for energy and infrastructure, looking at energy efficiency, environmental performance reporting, uh, various renewable energy assessments for their assets, um, and development of data management and reporting tools and so on. So I eventually made it back home, made it back to Oman um, in 2012, uh, where I worked at Ernst Young at EY in their climate change and sustainability um, sort of center of excellence or department, if you will. And so the focus then, at least in Oman, was on sustainability reporting aligned to the GRI principles. Um, so ESG and disclosure of how key blue chip clients across various industries are maintaining their social license to operate was really big here. Um, so I was sort of a part of that growth in country and developed quite a few uh, GRI uh, sustainability reports across the oil and gas sector, telecom, uh, and finance. Um, I did work as well on some lead assessments, uh, some lead green associate as well um, in the UAE. So I was a part of the regional team at EY. I then joined the family business in um, 2015, uh, HMR Consultants. Fantastic. So, so maybe just on that last bit, maybe if you could... Tell us a little bit more about the, your current role and, and a little bit more perhaps what, what uh, HMR kind of uh, focus on or are doing at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so HMR was founded about 30 years ago by Dr. Hussam Arawahi, my father, and it was the first Omani environmental engineering consultancy to be developed in the market here. Um, so what we do is we service clients across a broad range of industries, everything ranging from oil and gas to renewables, tourism, manufacturing, um, more recently green hydrogen as well. They're environmental with environmental advisory. Um, so we do a lot of impact assessment reporting, audits, um, and monitoring. Uh, ESG reporting as well now is picking up again in country. 
Uh, we also have an engineering division, and that supports some more boutique technical advisory services to clients. So, for example, one of the projects we worked on a few years ago was for one of the refineries where we did their impact assessment um, and then monitoring during construction and operations, and they had an odor issue. So they said, hey, guys, you know, what can we do about this? So we teamed up with an international uh, company to provide an odor abatement technology for their refinery. So we do like to kind of stay in our lane, stay very focused in boutique and some of our engineering, um, sort of hardcore engineering advisory, and look at partnerships and collaborations with international firms to help sort of meet these specialized fields um, and specialized solutions uh, for our clients. Um, so we've been in the market, uh, like I said, um, for three decades now. Um, and um, we're really growing our, our presence across various industries and uh, trying to expand as well into the technical advisory side. Um, now that green hydrogen and renewables are picking up, uh, we've established some strategic relationships with specialized firms to get more into the technical advisory piece. I actually didn't know you were from a family business, <laughs> Nashua. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Family that business. is that is how professional you are. Uh, <laughs> we we knew you were an Omani company, but uh, we we I actually didn't know it was a family business. So that's that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I remember my dad sitting at the kitchen table starting the business when we were younger, and you know seeing it evolve uh, over time. And now it was a one man show, and he grew the company and. Um, and then, and then when I joined and uh, being a beneficiary of that as well. So, yeah. Yes, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, as you probably recall, you did the first environmental and social impact assessment for hydrogen in Oman for us. <laughs> so <laughs> we can attest to how, how great you are, but it would be great to tell the, to the listeners a little bit uh, about why these environmental studies are so important because all over the world we're seeing these tenders and we're seeing people announcing projects in, in hydrogen and they seem to not have any time <laughs> available in their schedules for environmental assessment yeah. or any of the things that you know we, we obviously think are very important so it would be great to hear from you a little bit about what types of things and then also um, you know just what, why it, it, it makes such an impact. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's been a fantastic experience working on the Green Energy Arman uh, project, which has so many different uh, components. It's like working on six different impact assessments. So absolutely, environmental studies are absolutely critical um, very early in the planning stages to help assess some of these environmental and social constraints. I mean, really, when you're when you're looking at these uh, mega projects, uh, you want to look at site selection and land availability, not just for the solar and wind piece, but also what are the environmental constraints? Are they any important bird areas, uh, nature reserves, um, any flood prone regions and, and so on and so forth. So there are various environmental and social aspects that can really either be an enabler for the success of the project or a complete inhibitor to its development. So too often we find developers um, look at it as a checkbox exercise, saying, right, it's just here's a stamp, we need an environmental permit, and let's move on. And so sometimes they come to us at the very end and they're like, yeah, can we get this done in, in, in three months? Uh, and, and actually, no, no, we can't, and that's certainly not the case. So, you know, I remember when we met, Alicia, it was, uh, I guess it was 2018 at SGRF, the State General Reserve Fund, which is now Oman Investment Authority, and you're first looking at Oman for geo and looking at um, the export of renewable energy, which is, you know, fast forward five years now exported to uh, evolve, sorry, to, to green hydrogen and ammonia. 
Um, and we've seen how much the project has benefited from comprehensive environmental and social studies. So really this, this early environmental uh, constraints assessment has worked in favor for the project. So in looking at site boundaries um, and the area of influence. So for example, there's an Oryx reserve uh, around the project area. So defining where that is, is the boundary of this reserve going to be expanded to any extent? What is the appropriate setback or buffer zone, uh, if you will? Um, so that you're avoiding any impacts right off the bat before anything even happens, just looking at your site selection, um, what can be done. Uh, the same has to be said on the social side. This really ties into a lot of the stakeholder engagement that we did very early on in the project with not just government and institutional stakeholders, but also community stakeholders. Um, so, for example, in one of the project areas, there is a camel racetrack um, that's of significance to the community in, in central Amman, in the Al-Wusta region. And the way that impact was was mitigated is essentially avoided altogether. It's like, right, we're going to cut this out of this project area and we're going to you know, maintain the buffer distance and and work around that. So I really, really think it's it's really very critical to the success of, of any projects and in particular um, mega projects. No, I was, I was only going to ask because something that comes up and of course the team have warned you I'm going to jump in. So now I'm sort of falling onto form. But, you know, um, something we saw in the UK and obviously the scale of the projects you do is much bigger. But, you know, if I look at our project in South Wales, which is solar with a wind turbine and green hydrogen, so much, much smaller, but similar ingredients, we sort of tended to see, you know, the the local attitude towards the hydrogen was actually pretty, very few people generally comment too widely on it, actually. Um, and, and if they do, it generally is positive because they're looking at it as decarbonization. It's usually the solar and wind just because of the footprint and the visuals mm-hmm. that tends to be where we saw there was kind of the most, most of the time, the, the questions and curiosities from the community, and I guess concerns, exactly as you mentioned, because there are areas sometimes that are particularly important and have that meaningful connection for the community. So is that also, you know, um, part of your experience that it's very rarely the hydrogen side of this it's the broader renewables piece that seems to be the sort of the sensitive spot and then the link question does tying hydrogen to it so that there's more of a clear jobs angle and there's more of a this is how it contributes in a broader frame does that message change how it's perceived by those communities do they look at it more favorably or or frankly just differently than if it was just a solar and wind project yeah yeah no absolutely and that's a it's interesting that you should uh, mention that because this is actually something that came up in our engagement with the local community in both El Wusta, so it's the central of Oman and then the south of Oman, which is the footprint of the uh, green energy Oman project areas. And one of the biggest thing was, you know, you guys are taking up all of this land. So the landscape just appears to be big by virtue of these project areas. And you, they're, they're like, look, our concern is you're going to take up our land for grazing. So we have a large Bedouin community. Um, so it's a nomadic community here, uh, across, across the country. And they, they move sort of, they have their own patterns for, for movement depending on various seasons and so on and so forth. Um, and so their, their, their main concern was like, look, you're going to take up grazing land for our, our, our camels and our goats, and then this is going to impact our livelihood. Um, and then going through and explaining to them that yes, while the land area is vast, the actual land that is being developed is, is 5% out of that. And what that means and what that can, can look like really helped getting that buy-in to sort of explain to them what's being done. A, to first of all, mitigate any type of risk to their, to their livelihoods, as well as demonstrate how this can still sort of continue and progress as, as a project develops. And then linking that to the hydrogen piece. In particular, the downstream piece and, and ammonia, absolutely. You know, the, they certainly look for. We're, we're a very young population here in Oman, and 
Um, so the first concern to a lot of people and a lot of stakeholders is what about jobs? You know, what about training uh, Armani's uh, when developing, uh, you know, the supply chain or the value chain, if you will, that would service these mega projects. And so that's where the piece becomes interesting because hydrogen is nascent. It's like, okay, what is this hydrogen business that you, you know, you guys are talking about and ammonia and the exports and, you know, but, but then really linking it all together and demonstrating that in this project in particular, how they're being engaged with very early in the decision uh, making uh, sort of process, if you will, that their input is being fed directly into the design of the project. And that gains their trust and a level of comfort that um, in our experience we've seen is greatly appreciated by the stakeholders and in particular community stakeholders. No, I'm sorry to cut, cut across that, but um, it just it is just interesting seeing how these themes play across together, um, and, and actually also that it's quite consistent in markets that that job side of green hydrogen is actually helping with that social acceptance piece of renewables. Because I don't think we talk about that much, but I think it's interesting that it's a theme that seems to be cross-cutting on borders. Yeah, I mean, on the Bedouin piece, um, because we have so much potable water left over from the production of the ammonia we can actually help to green some of that desert and, and improve their grazing because they, they can mm-hmm. continue to do it in between the turbines. And right now, as you know, having seen the sites, there's not a lot of grass there. <laughs> no, um, definitely not. Yeah. Well, and I think this maybe feeds into uh, you know part of the, so the next question I had, and maybe we can embed water in there because it is a question that comes up a lot. So I think it'd be an interesting one if you could comment on it as well, Nashua, which is, you know, can you help us to understand a little bit about Vision 2040 in Oman? Because you know I think sometimes we see in the press like a big statement, Vision this, Vision that, mm-hmm. but you know, can you help us explain kind of what does it mean? How does the hydrogen strategy kind of sit in there and um and you know that then final piece what does that actually mean for hydrogen developers so you have this great vision how does hydrogen sit within that vision and then how are developers supposed to think about their role within that story right yeah so um starting with with your first point on Oman vision 2040 so it was launched um by his majesty sultan haitham bin al saeed in january 2021 and it really sets the blueprint for sustainable growth and success in country. Um, so it's a progressive development strategy, uh, and it fo- focuses around six uh, core themes, if you will. Um, so everything from knowledge and innovation, sustainable development, um, looking at a skilled and flexible workforce, um, uh, creating world-class infrastructure as well, um, all the way down to things like education systems, regulatory frameworks, um, as well as public services that can actually enable the business community to flourish in Oman. Uh, so supporting the implementation of this vision is a set of, you know, various economic and financial plans and development plans and so on, with the purpose of increasing the resilience of our private sector and attracting investment into the country as well as talent. Um, so tying it into the energy piece, uh, so Oman has a set policy for transition into alternative energy as a part of um, Oman Vision 2040. So it intends to average 39% of the total energy to be in from alternatives, uh, alternative sources by 2040. I think Oman is, is ranked first in the GCC and third in the Middle East and North Africa behind Nigeria and South Africa in the renewable energy transition. And uh, this was published in 2021 by a climate scope assessment report uh, in Bloomberg. In addition to that, again, tying into Vision 2040, Oman has committed to reaching net zero 
by 2050. Um, and the National Energy Strategy aims to derive 30% of electricity from renewable sources by 2030. Um, so Amana is taking this very seriously. It's really putting energy transition and decarbonization front and center as a key pillar um, in, in Vision 2020, among other economic drivers and levers, if you will. Um, and earlier last year, I think it was around March, the royal directives, five different royal directives were actually issued specifically in the hydrogen sector in Oman. Um, so it focused on new government structures and instructions to start studies and information gathering to really position Oman and set out its ambition to become one of the largest green hydrogen producers and exporters globally. Um, so as a part of the strategy, the, the green hydrogen strategy, Oman is targeting production of 1 million tons per annum by 2030. Uh, and of course, it's worth noting here that, you know, Oman is, is world class for solar radiation, wind speed and direction. It really optimizes the diurnal profile for the upstream part of the green hydrogen um, development. We also have a large amount of land that's available for development, that's developable land. Um, you know, easy access to seawater, which ties into your, your water piece in terms of feedstock for these electrolyzers and desalination capabilities in country. Um, you know, industrial and free zones for the manufacturing part, um, well understood risk uh, allocation in terms of bankability on projects, um, and established port infrastructure. We're strategically positioned uh, on the Gulf uh, along uh, various international trade and export uh, routes. And, and th I think the stable political and economic outlet outlook helps as well. So, you know, we, we have all of these things really coming together to position Oman as, as a world leader in producing uh, green hydrogen and its derivatives. So to accelerate the development in this sector, um, towards the end of last year, Hydrom was launched. Um, and really, they're the orchestrators for the green hydrogen ecosystem in Oman. So it's fully owned by Energy Development Oman, also known as EDO, which was established in, in, in 2022 to represent the government's stake in uh, the largest petroleum uh, company, PDO uh, Oman. Um, so it's really championing the country's energy transition. So Hydrom is a central and independent entity enabling the delivery of these, these uh, green hydrogen projects competitively and at scale for the world. Um, so its, its main mandate is to master plan the sector. So what it's going through right now or what it started back in December is to delineate government owned land areas. Uh, structuring associated large-scale green hydrogen projects, um, managing the process for allocating these lands to developers and overseeing um, their execution, as well as looking at facilitating the development of common infrastructure, connected ecosystems and industries and hubs and so on. And, and so the way this is going to work is, is through auctioning and, and phase, phase one is already well underway. And, and so what Hydrom intends to do is toward land blocks of approximately, I think it's 320 kilometers, square kilometers for green hydrogen projects this year. And so phase A is divided into two bid rounds. The first bid round aims to conclude at the end of the first quarter of this year, wherein two blocks will be awarded in Dukum or around the Alwasta region. And round two, an additional up to four blocks will be awarded in the Bufad area in the south of Oman by the end of Q4 of this year as well. And so what that means for developers or what Oman at least expects from developers is that they cover the full green hydrogen value chain. So from renewable production, um, so proposing the right sort of wind and solar mix uh, to ensure a competitive LCOH um, and technology mix uh, over time. Um, hydrogen production, so, you know, proposing the type of electrolyzer technology and so on, as well as its derivative uh, conversion. So what is the end project? Will it be green ammonia, methanol, 
what it's really up to the discretion, left to the discretion of the developers. And finally, of course, the, the golden one is, is the market for it. So, you know, the developers are expected to secure the offtake for their projects. Just on the bidding piece, because I think there's an interesting aspect here, which is, you know, one of the requirements uh, flagged is, is the in-country value. I'm just wondering, can, can you perhaps explain, you know, why that's important for, for Vision 2040 uh, success, but also, you know, I suppose in a sense, definitionally, what, what is in-country value in, in, in country? What does that mean? That's, that's a very good question because this is certain, uh, definitely something that's, you know, front and center, uh, for the government or in, in our, in our across many industries. So ICV is actually defined by the government as a total spend retained in country that benefits business development, contributes to human capability development, and stimulates productivity in the Oman economy. So simply put, products made by and services provided by skilled Armanis. Um, so actually the concept of ICV uh, was a brainchild of the oil and gas sector in Oman, and it started in 2012 out of the necessity to really engage the local community um, and create sustainable value in the vast opportunities and economic benefits of the sector. So what Oman, what we've done is designed the ICV approach to be very collaborative, so really benefiting from a strong centralized government commitment to push the ICV agenda forward. And although the government did take a, a strong leadership role, the success, I think, of the ICV program is, is also due to them working directly with oil and gas operators. So once it started, it was exclusive for the oil and gas sector. Um, and really it brought the, the operators in to, and, you know, around the table and, and their technical expertise as well as perhaps some of their experience in implementing local content efforts in other countries, um, to the table as well. So it ensures that promoting ICV would not hinder investment but it would be sustainable um, in the long run. And it also generated the industry buy-in, you know, making it more likely for the, that the private sector would actually implement ICV in a meaningful way. So by broadening the definition of, of value um, in terms of how this is defined, ICV, so for example, there what we look at or what the government looks at is, is long-term ICV, so things like small to medium-sized enterprise development, investment in fixed assets, um, development of training institutions. So rather than just focusing on short-term like local procurements of goods and services and contracts, that kind of there's a start and a stop point. So creating something that's truly sustainable and then incentivizing the development of local capabilities in the workforce and the supply base. So there's, there's a strong emphasis on training and, and knowledge transfer to really help ensure that these ICV schemes kind of avoid traditional pitfalls associated with local content requirements. You know, these programs have been around since, since the seventies. Um, and when the local industry lacks the capacity in terms of both, uh, capital formation and workforce to meet the demands of a very highly specialized sector, then it just creates issues such as bottlenecks and cost inflation and so on. Um, so Oman is, is really equipped with a solid base of skills and industrial capability. And we also have very sophisticated infrastructure to ensure that new activities that emerge from this ICV program across different sectors, so not just oil and gas, but also translating this to the hydrogen sector, manufacturing, and so on, um, we can sort of quickly scale up and reach a competitive level. So it's with this sort of long-term horizon in mind that the ICV strategies Main objectives really are, are around two goals, let's say. So there is a sustainable and balanced industrial growth and human resource development element of it as well. And it, tying it to Vision 2040, well, it speaks to the very core of Vision 2040, which is to create 
uh, a developed and sustainable and prosperous economy in country. And, and actually, as a part of the strategy, uh, the Vision 2040 strategy is to foster ICV across various sectors to really achieve greater economic diversification, you know, reducing reliance on oil and gas industry and create meaningful opportunities for the Amani workforce and business um, community as well. Great. Well, um, that, that was a long answer, Patrick. Did it satisfy? <laughs> <laughs> I think she covered it in all sides. <laughs> well, it's, it's a huge area. I mean, it is. I, I do want to, if I can, I want to, I mean, we've touched on it in aspects and I mentioned it before, but as, as uh, Alicia mentioned, water, I just wonder where water comes into all of this, you know, around, you know, not just the strategy, but also around the requirements for, you know, those developers and also kind of how much of the government joining up these elements are there because, you know, I imagine it must be a very sensitive part of all this planning. It's a question that always comes up in the context of green hygiene and the GCC in, in markets. So I wondered if you could just speak a little bit to that, especially given your expertise and the work you've already done in this area. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So on the water piece, um, so what, for example, a lot of these projects are looking at is looking at desalinated water. Um, and if we tie that into, of course, environmental impact. So firstly, the desalinated water industry, desalination plants there, you know, it's, it's a very developed industry in Oman. It's what we rely on for our source of, of, of water consumption. Um, so it's quite a sophisticated sector, I would say. But of course, the environmental impacts do remain. Um, and, and you know, yes, the, Green hydrogen is excellent. We we all understand that. We all know it's inherently good for the environment. We're looking at decarbonization and meeting climate targets. Um, but that doesn't mean it has zero environmental impact, right? There, there's obviously a footprint. There's no a green halo around any type of development. So so for water in, in particular, I mean, um, there, there's the consumption, uh, so requiring very large amounts of, of water to, to service um, the projects as well. The chemical use in the desalination plants that may be of impact in terms of the selection of the chemicals and ultimately discharge of the brine uh, into the, back into the marine environment. Um, but really these impacts can be mitigated and, and we're doing that across, across our projects. We've done that for, uh, you know, pure desalination projects and certainly in looking at mega hydrogen projects where desalination is such a big piece and, um, you know, that undisturbed and certain quality of water going into these electrolyzer electrolyzer systems becomes very important. Um, and the way in which that's being done is, is first of all, right off the bat, you know, doing the coastal outfall discharge and, and recirculation studies um, and, and the site selection for these desalination plants. So there are industrialized zones already um, where these these sort of plants can be developed. Um, there's also regulation in Oman as well that governs um, very strict requirements in terms of discharge to the marine environment. So it's all very clear and transparent uh, in terms of how sort of the water element can be a mitigated in terms of either avoiding the impacts altogether or reducing it or offsetting any potential impacts um, from that piece as well. Uh, I mean, the fact that it's it's renewable upstream is great because um, they're conventionally a very, in, they, they require very large amounts of energy to operate uh, desalination plants. Um, so at least that piece is, is decarbonized. But again, understanding, you know, you know, undertaking the technical studies right off the bat and then implementing environmentally friendly practices, such as, you know, looking at optimizing the chemicals that are being used to minimizing discharge of brine into the environment, um, to looking at, uh, how, you know, the filters are designed and, and so on and so forth. So it doesn't impact the marine ecology. But how this really ties into the broader hydrogen ecosystem, uh, that's being, or that's under development in Oman, has has yet to sort of emerge um, because like I, I touched on or alluded to Hydrom looking at developing some of this common infrastructure and water is actually classified as one of the common infrastructure that Hydrom is looking to take control over in um, developing these green hydrogen projects in country. 
And it, it sort of almost strikes me a little bit, and I'll stop talking before Alicia tells me off, but it almost strikes me a little bit in the way that when the Dutch were doing their planning for the offshore wind industry, that actually they were much more advanced than um, many others in saying that actually the rather than having developers creating a mishmash of substations and transmission infrastructure to connect all the offshore wind back, they actually would, as the state, take responsibility for building that shared infrastructure on linking the offshore wind into the transmission system. And they would take on that responsibility and drive down the costs and remove a lot of that planning uncertainty from developers. And they would step in and, and take that position. And, and that's what you're describing sounds like a very sensible, similar approach which is to say look, let's take this off the table we then also can set the standards make sure it's done the right way make sure communities involved and, and all of those aspects and we don't have that pressure between developers and others on this which i thought is, makes a lot of sense right yeah no absolutely absolutely yeah um actually in country values is so important and it's, it's why it's a part of the bidding process as well um in order for for the projects to actually succeed but I, I would love to hear more about how you think HMR is going to be able to help Oman reach its goals, specifically in hydrogen. What, what types of new things do you think you'll be taking on or, or what types of strategies are you already planning in order to help fulfill these goals uh, with, within hydrogen? Yeah, no, I mean, we've certainly positioned ourselves to really be a part of the story. We definitely want to be a part of its success. Um, and as a knowledge base uh, company, we're in the technical advisory arena. One thing we're doing is aligning ourselves um, with some specialized advisors uh, in this arena to really help service a lot of these contracts that are that are coming out and a lot of the opportunities as well. Because what what often happens, and then you know, this kind of ties back into the whole concept of of in-country value is um, it's, it's a nascent field, right? It's nascent not only for a man, but globally. This is this is evolving and things are going to change and uh, we have to adapt and, and be flexible and innovation needs to go in lockstep with that. But retaining that knowledge in-country is, is where we, we want to come in. Um, we want to learn. We want to be a part of that. Um, and it's really at the core of progressing the agenda and, and helping our man reach its goals, reaching the, you know, vision 2040 and, and beyond really. Um, and so what we, we've actively been, been doing that. We've been collaborating with experts. Um, I mean, even on the geo project as well to service certain aspects, um, of the advisory services. Um, so whether it's on the outfall and, and, and discharge recirculation studies to the QRA studies and, and really understanding the links, uh, the links between, between all of these, uh, elements in the green hydrogen space. Um, and in particular for, for HMR, uh, I think hiring and training Armanis is something that we pride ourselves in doing, and it's our piece to the ICV story as well. It's something we've always done. We've encouraged everything from internships to fresh graduates. Uh, I had mentioned earlier that we are a very young population uh, and an educated population as well. Um, and the most popular degrees, by the way, are in engineering and management. Um, so you have this, you know, highly technical, qualified um you know, young, innovative, passionate individuals that are workforce, you know, ready. Um, and, and they're thirsty for, for work and, and for learning and to, you know, getting into new areas. I mean, even in, in areas like procuring local goods and services. So how are we localizing the, the value chain? And this is something that, you know, Geo has done, done really well. So by, <clears throat> by, by virtue of selecting HMR, we are, you know, using labs, for example, local labs or our baseline surveys, um, logistics services as well. Um, so it's really contributing to the very core of, of ICV. You know, we can kind of be 
sort of HMR as, as the poster child of ICV, if you will. And, and we have been, I would say, over the past 30 years that we've been in, in operation where we've aligned ourselves to, okay, where where is the country going? Where is the thinking? What are the goals and targets? And how can we align ourselves to that, especially in a knowledge-based service industry? Um, so really creating, you know, uh, sustainability and, and longevity and um, localizing these value chains as far as feasible in an industry that's emerging and would uh, certainly greatly benefit from that. Nashra, I think you've answered answered many of our questions. I think if if we can if we can, had a round out question, I would start out with this, which is, you know, given this vision for twenty forty, uh, and given the kind of proactive steps that are already underway, what is the longer term vision for for this entire kind of space as it's evolving beyond those kind of immediate kind of bid processes, project development processes? What's what's the Omani vision for for its role in the transforming energy system as best you can answer such a big and broad question yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that is no it's it's a heavy one but it's it's an important one and i think this is what was really driving this whole you know developing the green hydrogen industry and the government i would say being quite aggressive you know i mean other than oil and gas i'd say this is sort of this was next in, in terms of the their will to really push this forward for long-term reasons right so as we are looking to diversify away away from from oil and gas um, and, and we're looking at getting into to new areas and ensuring the sustainability of the country in the long term. Um, hydrogen has been identified as an area, uh, a very viable area for our economy to to sort of really progress and, and get into. So I think that's ultimately the long term plan is looking at decarbonization, diversifying our economy. Um, I know early this year, I think in Q1 of, of 2023, there's going to be a study uh, published by the IEA looking at, at Oman in particular and how large-scale development of green hydrogen could really help us establish new revenue streams and also decarbonize our domestic energy use. And so this is, this is, I think, a, a part of certainly the, the very long-term strategy beyond just this sort of immediate, okay, let's get developers in, let's get on the green hydrogen um, sort of train now uh, and, and early on, but also really what that means for us. Uh, in addition to, to the export piece and, and creating a new revenue stream for the country, but also domestic energy use and how we're decarbonizing some of the difficult to abate uh, sectors. I think there's something like 84% of our medium and high temperature heat use, so energy uh, of total, Oman's total energy needs, um, is, is, is going to be met or intends to be met by, by hydrogen, hydrogen. So replacing natural gas and industrial processes for the high temperature heat aspect. Um, so I think there, there are many ways and, and, and sort of many reasons in which the government is very strategically focusing in this area. And then looking at the entire value chain is creating, right? So we're looking at the, you know, the manufacturing industry. We already spoke about water, desalination industry as well, job opportunities, uh, training Armanis in new areas and becoming an exporter of this knowledge. Why not? You know, we're constantly, yes, we're, we're young, we're a developing nation and we're, you know, we're importing knowledge, we're importing technology constantly. And that's, you know, the dynamic will constantly, yes, absolutely prevail and be there. Um, but as we're innovating in this space and we're keeping up with it and, and Arman has, uh, you know, such a clear advantage and USP, if you will, in developing and, and producing, you know, green hydrogen and its derivatives, then we can then become the exporter of knowledge in, in different ways and uh, experience share and, and so on and so forth. Um, so it's it's I, I think it, it is a heavy agenda, and I think it's one that the government is taking very seriously. Um, this year as well, there will be the hydrogen policy. That'll be established. And so the regulatory context, um, around it would then become more clear and, and more tailored. And I think a further increase in investor confidence, um, in this space.
Definitely. I, I really think um, just listening to you speak, everyone can understand just how sophisticated, how well thought out uh, the processes are, the vision, how, how it is that uh, Oman looks to um, pursue it, and, and specifically really excellent groups like yourself. You know, when Alex Thank and I you. met you in 2018, we were totally blown away, but we were not allowed to choose you as the technical advisor. We had to have our technical people choose you. So we just were like hoping in the background that you would win. <laughs> and you did based entirely on the fact that, that, uh, your team was, was so brilliant and so capable and, and really covered everything so well. And, and as you said, we partnered early for the same reasons, you know, you, you say is important. It, it makes sense to do no harm, right? We're in this business right. to decarbonize and to, to, um, to make the environment better. So by partnering with you early, it really helped us to avoid a lot of issues. And I, I think it's a proof that having a really good partner in country is really is really helpful. And um, it's a, a little bit of ICB in its own right that I think a lot of countries should should really think about because uh, local people have great ideas, too, and usually are extremely well educated. But uh, as everyone has now heard on this on this podcast. So thank you so much for, for coming on, explaining everything to us. I think even I only understood maybe half so uh, I'll have to go listen to it again uh, <laughs> and report right now on the points. But it's really been a pleasure. And uh, really, thanks so much for, for joining us. Thank you for having me. The The pleasure is all mine. Thank you. And, and thank you so much um, for that feedback. And, and kudos to you as well and to the Green Energy Roman team and consortium uh, and really prioritizing the whole concept of in-country value. It's, it's, it isn't just a checkbox exercise and, and something that sounds good, but it's actually being implemented uh, at, at the very core level, you know, from, you know, whether it's selecting HMR or others and really creating that local um, supply chain to, to service the project. And there's so many more opportunities to come, I'm sure. So, um, really, this is uh, really exemplary and, um, not a lot of developers do it, whether international or, or local or otherwise. Um, so, you know, encouraging and, and bringing a promoter of HMR is great. <laughs> so thanks for that. No suffering on our side. We got the best, uh, and, and local. So, you know, sometimes, uh, it's a win-win. <laughs> Well, no surprise. That was great. Uh, Nashua is an amazing woman, as I'm sure you could pick up from the conversation. But I'd like to hear what you think. <laughs> Anything new you learned from the discussion? Yeah, no, uh, it was fantastic to have Nashua on. And thank you for, uh, for, for introducing. I mean, I, I think firstly, it's just interesting getting a little bit more context on the Omani market. That was just quite interesting to, to kind of have a little bit about that and you know given the size of the project being built out in oman and in the general i think people might have some understanding from the oil and gas sector but obviously these types of projects are quite, quite different uh, and interesting how she talked about the policy environment as well um you know i thought that was quite um you know it was actually quite a robust and solid defense of what Oman was doing and i don't think it was necessarily something i knew or that maybe others are as aware of what did you think i mean you know you've heard us speak many times i think uh, the refrain that i remember from you most often was uh, you know how much you felt you'd learned despite knowing her before so what stood out to you and what did you feel that uh, listeners if they if they were trying to process all that content what were the big takeaways you'd say that probably they should be I mean, I, I think the first thing is is that I actually had no idea it was a family business um, because she is absolutely so professional and, and has a, a stellar CV from many other organizations and 
has, you know, excellent schooling and, and whatnot. But from the first time we met her, which I think she thought it was 2018, but actually I think it was 2017 even, we just were blown away by how aligned she was with our thinking. Because as you know, the art projects are not just about being big, but it's also about an ecosystem and it's also about all of the ESG around that. And she was not just interested in the environment, and, and obviously that's of, of, of interest, but it's also the socioeconomic impacts. It's all of the impacts of, of having a project. And, and she really, you could see the way that she talks about it, how thorough they are and how detailed and how, how important some of these factual and um, you know, measurable items are, and also how important the, the relationships are with uh, communities that are going to be impacted by the project and, and how you can make the project a positive for those communities. It just, and, and just all the ways that you really work together with people in order to get it the best results and to actually improve the environment as opposed to looking at it as things that are gonna get in the way of your project. We, we look at it as what can we do to actually make this project better and or what can we do to make this actual area of land better? And, you know, one of the things that we plan to do is, is green part of the desert so that there can be food security in that area. And I think she thinks that all the way through. And you can you can hear that in our interview, how how detailed, how engaged, how how important every element of that is. And. I mean, it's, I wanted people to hear that because I often hear announcements of projects that where the person, the company has possibly never even visited the country, but they plan to have an FID next year. And, and I just wonder, like, when they are doing the environmental assessment, when they're doing the data collection, when they're doing the, you know, pre-feed, when they're doing the feed, it's like they have no concept of development and how it works and what the stages are. And think that you can just flip your fingers and if it's a country like Oman, because a lot of people have very um, outdated ideas about what the environmental standards are in the GCC. I mean, most cases GCC uh, is up to EU standards or uses the EU as the standard. Uh, often cases, especially in Saudi, I've run into, you know, much more rigorous standards than almost anywhere. So it is important, and I think that's good for people to hear because I think they do often assume otherwise, and uh, and, and thankfully that's not the case. It's actually quite rigorous, and uh, it's a it's, it's a real process, which was really helpful. I mean, she talked about some of the solutions that we came up with with her, but you know, it's it's iterative. You work together as a team, and you you really try to make it the best result you can. So um, I think that was good for people to hear. And then I know Oman is not you know, on everyone's map. So knowing a, a lot about the Oman process probably isn't <laughs> the most exciting thing for everybody listening. But almost every country in the world is doing a hydrogen strategy. And they're all looking at each other. And they're all implementing a lot of, of similar um, structures, you know, having one centralized entity that is uh, going to be allocating land if there is a lot of resource in that country. There's many things. The ICV is very important for all of them. And, and so, you know, most countries are actually looking at and thinking about and trying to make um, this new this new resource and this new opportunity to, to produce green fuels to make it also kind of a new green deal. I mean, they also want jobs for people. They want high tech jobs. They want education. They want they want all these things that 
this offers. And, and so this is played out as you're seeing everywhere in the world. It's, it's very much not just in the GCC or Oman or, you know, uh, in the countries that we're in. I mean, I think it's a bit of a must for everyone. But I mean, this is the thing that I guess is interesting. You know, how how should we think about the level of competition from the GCC? There are so many projects and there's so much interest, right? Because the solar resource is obviously incredible. The wind resource is incredible. This is a well-known global energy hub today, all right? Maybe for fossils, but granted for the future, it could be good. Yeah, and I guess... You know, there is a there's probably you know you mentioned legacy i guess the legacy would have been that normally it's an energy trade where the where money and securities coming in from the west to the region and energy is flowing to the west but obviously in the last 15 20 years that's been changing the energy's been flowing to the east right it's going to india it's going to china uh, and so the, i i guess then bit that sits in my mind and we didn't really get into it is how should we think about the role of these countries in energy markets because if it's no longer the west is the biggest buyers of energy products from these regions and if they are still positioning themselves to be these big energy superpowers if you like of the world or one of the biggest superpower markets for energy supply in the world uh, if it is markets like china and india and we'd be thinking then about these projects and how they develop differently i mean to be honest I don't think of it as competition. I mean, as you know, I have a great interest in shipping and that is a gigantic market. And it is better for me if other companies also produce green ammonia because the market is just too big. And, you know, you can't um, you can't service it uh, without having lots of big projects around the world. Um, and And I think that I don't think you have to compete. I think that there will always be an advantage for locally produced uh, hydrogen to do certain activities. And then if you need to import, then you have locations to import that are that are are possible. But I, I don't I don't really see imports competing with a good local business case. And especially now that you have IRA, you're and they're not going to be competing with a bad local business case. <laughs> I mean, I, you know what I'm saying? Like a, a highly subsidized uh, business case, right? Um, but I still think, it, you know, it's it's always going to go um, to the closest buyer, right? It, it's always like you're always going to try to solve the the locals the local problem first with uh with with whatever you're producing because that's no cost of transportation. And if you're going to be using hydrogen, not ammonia, then that's no cost of actual production of ammonia. And so I think, or, you know, other other green fuels. So I think that it doesn't have to be competition. It's it's, it's a lot of horses for courses. And then it's um, just making sure that the countries that have these fantastic resources are using them to produce the lowest cost options so that other people can use them around the world so that, you know, the cost is low enough to actually be affordable. I think what's good is that, you know, yes, some areas of the GCC definitely have a lot of resource. Um, Oman is, is, is really a standout. Um, Saudi has some, um, but it's not the whole country. There's absolutely no wind in the UAE. There's no wind in Kuwait. Um, so there's, there's, it's a, it's a mix of, it's not, they're not all identical. And I think that there's going to be a lot of global South countries that'll have an industry for the first time. And this can really be a positive story uh, for, for them. And then I think, yes, it will change a little bit who we get our, our resources from. But I think when you look at it from the EU perspective, there's absolutely going to have to be importing 
right? I mean, even if we do everything that we can on the ground and on the sea, and you know, I think there's probably definitely going to be importing and, and that's fine. And, and you can import and, and you want to import at a, at a low price and, and make sure that it's green or that it's, you know, blue with a very high standard. Yeah, and I mean, and and, and I and, and I was going to say, do do these projects, you know, and do the the fact that there are these high environmental standards, and the fact that there are now these green projects coming through, mean that maybe we won't see as much blue hydrogen from the area as was discussed. I think that would be ideal. Definitely, these countries are looking at green as the future, and you know, blue can be produced more uh, in greater quantities uh, sooner. So I do think there will be a, a sort of interim role for blue that's a little bit easier and especially if, if companies already have carbon capture technology that works then uh you know they, they may be able to produce blue for some time but most people think that uh, blue and green pricing is pretty much there's no advantage to blue or at around like 2030 which is pretty much when when the industry really gets off the ground so yeah. i don't think um blue has a really long-term life and i don't think they do either yeah. So I think I think the green is the future for everyone, which is which is good. It's actually good to be aligned in that case. <laughs> I mean, something we didn't actually talk about at all this year. You know, it, one might make an interesting observation that you know we don't talk much about women in the sector, right? I mean, but obviously, you know, you are a very well known, very successful woman in the space. There are you know other women in very significant and important roles across the green hygiene ecosystem but actually you know women on projects and sort of women leading environmental work leading design engineering work people maybe don't talk about enough and i think it is probably worth taking a step back and going actually there's something quite impressive about the fact that you know you're in a gcc country where actually one of those senior engineers and environmental experts is a woman and is you know running very successful you know doing some really exciting projects and working on some really innovative things and yeah you know, maybe people don't talk about that enough and maybe that's a bit of a mistake actually to not you know i guess we don't want to draw attention to it in the sense that we want it to be mainstream and drawing attention to it takes slightly from that but i felt here maybe actually not by not emphasizing that maybe we we're doing disservice to the fact that this is not a all-male industry over there it is actually much broader than people might realize yeah no i mean that's definitely the case and and also my counterpart at uh, the project in oman and geo um is najwa who is a uh, the CEO of uh, OQ's Alternative Energy. So there's actually quite a lot of women involved in this project, in our project alone. And that it's not like we were out looking for particularly working with women, but that just, you know, turned out to be um, the best people on, on the projects. But I would say that all of the world has been trying to emphasize uh, women in hydrogen, women in uh, oil and gas, you know, STEM, having more women as engineers. This has been something that every country has been trying to promote for some time. So I don't think it's an insult to, to think that you would want to promote that in Oman or anywhere else. But I don't think that they're also far behind anywhere else. And certainly not India or China or Korea or Japan or any number of countries that I could list that have not always had e equal treatment between men and women. Um, U.S. would be high on that list, in fact. There's, there's few places in the world and maybe Sweden is the only one, or Denmark, where women really have equal opportunity to do exactly the same thing as men do, because, you know, they can also have childcare and they can also have all these things taken care of so that they can have a career. I mean, this is an issue literally everywhere. <laughs> and I, I bet you could talk to people in, in uh, Denmark who would, you would say it's a problem there too. I'm <laughs> not sure, but... Um, maybe. 
Well, I'm, uh, I mean, I'm conscious that what we're probably straying into, which I actually think might be quite a good episode <laughs> for next time, is maybe we should be. Uh, there's the uh, Women in Green Hygiene um, Forum, and actually maybe it's worth getting a few representatives from there, because I think it's an interesting topic, right? I mean, UK, for example, the two biggest hygiene trade associations, both their CEOs are women, right? Which actually I think is pretty, is actually quite impressive. There's a lot of uh, women entrepreneurs and women CEOs in a hygiene market, a lot of um, very well-known, well-spoken women in the hygiene space in the UK and, and, and in other markets, Europe as well, especially. People obviously like yourselves and people like Nashua. And so maybe that actually is a, as a note to finish on from this episode, maybe that's one of the takeaways from here. Maybe we should try and get a, a little panel of people to talk about sort of, you know, about this context of green hygiene and uh, you know, best women working on different things. So uh, let's uh, leave that with our listeners as a note, and uh, maybe we'll do that for next time. Definitely, um, and and I just I think in general I think we're doing pretty well with the industry um, in this particular area. So we just have to keep it up. <laughs> well, that sounds like a fantastic note to finish on. And that does it for us here today at Everything About Hydrogen. A huge EAH thank you to Nashua Al-Rawahi, Director of HMR Environmental Consultants, for speaking with us on the show today. And thank you, as always, to Alicia, Patrick, and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. And as you know, we love hearing from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. If you have any questions for us or our guests and would like to get in touch with us, please send us an email at info at h2podcast.com or find us on Twitter at, at About Hydrogen. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Till then, all the best from the team here at Everything About Hydrogen. Hydrogen.